Hello everybody, welcome back to another podcast. Happy New Year. This is the first one for 2020. I'm recording this early January. And I guess I will start off by plugging my Science of Fitness course coming up. Uh, There will be the public release for enrollment in a few weeks time. So if you're listening to this in January, uh, keep an eye out for that. The content that I'm going to go through in this podcast will be kind of similar to some of the stuff I talk about in the course itself. So it'll probably give you a bit of an insight into the type of thing that I like to teach within the course like that. So to today's podcast, what I am going to talk about is energy expenditure during rest and exercise. And the reason I wanted to touch on this is because I recently made a post about how your Fitbit is not great at measuring energy expenditure. And neither is the exercise equipment that we typically use, like a treadmill or whatever it is. So I thought what I'd do is actually just go through uh, energy expenditure at rest, energy expenditure during exercise, and clear up a few things just to make the whole concept a little bit clearer and a bit more understandable for everybody. So to jump straight into it, energy expenditure at rest, we typically talk about basal metabolic rate or resting metabolic rate. They're technically a little bit different, but most people use them Uh, interchangeably. So there's a technical definition. I'm not really going to go into it because I think it's going to confuse things. But if I say BMR or RMR, you can assume that I'm talking about the same thing for the purposes of this podcast. So the BMR, the basal metabolic rate, is the minimum level of energy you need to sustain all of your vital functions when you're awake. So think about if you were, say, lying in a hospital bed in a stable environment, that would be the minimum amount of energy required just to keep you alive. So it reflects the total heat production in the body. It reflects oxygen consumption uh, in, a, in a really tightly controlled setting. So no external temperature fluctuations or anything like that. It reflects fasted state metabolism. So it doesn't include any energy that you might be spending digesting stuff. And so usually if we measure someone's BMR in a lab, we're measuring it after a minimum of 12 hours of fasting. It also reflects a rested state. So what can happen is when you exercise, you have some processes that occur to just help bring your body back to normal, to homeostasis again, and that costs energy. So when we measure BMR, we're also reflecting a rested state where there's been no exercise performed within a few hours before measurement. And so this is actually measured in a lab setting under all of those conditions with a subject lying on their back for 30 minutes in a thermo-neutral environment, in other words, it's not too hot or not too cold, and we record oxygen consumption for around 10 minutes to work out what the BMR is. Like I mentioned, resting metabolic rate is a little bit different. Um, It accounts for energy expended after a light meal, so that's the only real difference there, but like I said, most people actually use these interchangeably, and you'll probably find most people use BMR or basal metabolic rate. Now, typically, for the average person, your basal metabolic rate will account for somewhere in the region of 60 to 75% of your total daily energy expenditure. And just so you're familiar with the terminology, your total daily energy expenditure is obviously the total amount of energy you use in a day. And this is often referred to as TDEE. Uh, and so that would be your total energy cost to fund everything uh, throughout a day. 
So TDEE will include your energy costs associated with digesting food, which we call the thermic effect of food. So it's like digestion, absorption, assimilation. That's about 10% of your daily energy costs for most people. And then physical activity is whatever's left. And we tend to divide physical activity into activity that we do on purpose for training. Um, and then we also divide it into movement that we perform just in our daily tasks. So, you know, standing, carrying things, moving things around, cooking, cleaning, any physical task that is not purposeful training is also included in physical activity because that obviously also, uh, also counts. So you can see that uh, although BMR would account for about 60 to 75% of most people's total daily energy expenditure, so it represents a really big chunk, um, it's also the least variable out of all of these. And so physical activity for most people doesn't represent that much energy expenditure, but it's also the most variable. You know, For some people, it's gonna account for 50% or more of their daily energy expenditure. And for some people, it's only gonna account for about 15% of their daily energy expenditure. And that mostly depends on what your occupation is. Uh, you know, So some, like if you're an agricultural worker or a builder or something like that, uh, a large portion of your total daily energy expenditure is gonna come from stuff involved with your job and what you're doing with your daily tasks. Um, you know, And then obviously an office worker who is sitting most of the day, it'll be quite different. Also, obviously, your training. If you're an endurance athlete who's training a lot, you might expend much more energy than someone who does a minimal amount of training. So it's obviously pretty variable depending. Now, uh, this kind of leads us into the concept of metabolic size. How come we know that BMR is super stable and it's pretty predictable for most people? It relates to this concept of metabolic size. So metabolic size... Um, was discovered pretty early on. Uh, and the idea is that heat production is relative to your body's surface area. So it became really common early on to express your basal metabolic rate uh, by your body's surface area, which we measured in meters squared. And we, we call this the surface area law. Uh, now, a few de decades after that, it, we actually discovered that this law doesn't apply to all species. And so the concept of metabolic size was introduced, which basically described the relationship between body size and heat production using body mass instead. And this works pretty well for humans and most mammals and birds and that sort of thing. So if we uh, index this figure off of your lean body mass, we can allow us to account for gender differences as well. And so we know based on this principle that given a certain amount of body mass, we can calculate with a fair bit of accuracy what your basal metabolic rate is going to be. And that's how come we can use BMR equations, and we can be pretty accurate with them for most people. So generally, an estimate of basal metabolic rate based on your age and based on your body weight will fall within about 10% of actual lab measurements. So if I pulled anybody off the street, and I used an equation based on their age and their body weight to try and calculate what their basal metabolic rate will be, how much energy it takes just to keep them alive, um, I'd get pretty close. If we actually measured them, I'd be within 10% on either side. So it's, it's pretty accurate if you consider um, you know, how different people actually are. There's a pretty strong association between your fat-free mass or your lean body mass and your basal metabolic rate. So obviously people who have more lean mass uh, will burn more energy, but it also doesn't make as much difference as many people think. So if you increase your lean mass by about one kilogram or 2.2 pounds, 
you could expect like somewhere between 15 to 20 calories a day increase in resting metabolic rate. So the difference is much smaller than most people think. It's not completely insignificant. You know, if you, for example, trained a lot throughout your, your training life and you put on 10 kilos of lean mass, which is possible, uh, you know, that's going to be a significant increase in, in your total metabolic rate, but that's a lot of lean mass. And a lot of people go with this strategy of trying to increase their muscle mass because then they increase so many more calories of burn every day for all this muscle you've got on. And you do burn more calories for sure. And obviously your movements cost more and all that sort of stuff, but your basal metabolic rate doesn't change that much. Now we tend to find that as you age, this is where age comes in, there's about a two to 3% reduction in basal metabolic rate per decade of aging for both sexes. So it's not that significant to going from 20 years old to 30 or to 40, but if you're comparing someone in their 20s to someone in their 60s or 70s, it starts to become pretty significant. Um, and a lot of this has to do with the fact that older people get less active and their lean mass reduces. So regular exercise, whether it's endurance exercise or resistance exercise, will offset this age-related decline in basal metabolic rate. Um, and so that's a really viable strategy and why it's so important to keep exercising when you get older. Most people don't. So estimates of daily resting energy expenditure will take your standard BMR value for age and sex, and then it will multiply it by surface area, which we calculate from your height and your mass. And then we can basically work out how much ox oxygen you're consuming. So oxygen consumption is really the main way that we can work out how much energy you are using. We I've mentioned heat a couple of times. So uh, heat is obviously energy transfer, and so it relates to how much energy we're actually producing within the system of our body. And oxygen consumption is highly related to that. You know that we use oxygen to help produce ATP or replenish ATP to fund all of our movement and, and our metabolic rate and all that sort of stuff. So whenever I say oxygen consumption, we are referring directly to how much energy you produce because if we can calculate exactly how many um, molecules of oxygen you've consumed over a period of time, we can actually calculate exactly how much energy you've used during that time as well. So lean body mass includes not only your muscles, but organs and the most oxygen consumption in humans actually comes from the liver and the brain uh, and skeletal muscle at rest is only after those. So the most oxygen consumption in humans comes from in order, the liver, uh, which comprises over a quarter of oxygen consumption for the day in most people. Uh, the brain is next and then skeletal muscle at rest. After that, we have the kidneys and the heart. Now, skeletal muscle obviously ramps up by a lot, by about a hundred times when we exercise. So that's just a little caveat there, but resting metabolic rate, uh, it doesn't account for quite as much as the liver or the brain. So uh, moving on from there, what factors would affect energy expenditure. Our total, total daily energy expenditure comprises what I've just been talking about, the basal metabolic rate, but it also comprises factors relating to activity, to uh, diet-induced thermogenesis. In other words, like I mentioned before, digesting and absorbing your food. It relates to uh, climate, what, what the external temperature is like. It relates to, you know, maybe if you're pregnant, you might in increase your total daily energy expenditure or if you're breastfeeding. So there's a few different factors we have to consider. Uh, as I mentioned before, physical activity is for sure the most variable out of all of these. And usually physical activity in most people, in the average person, will account for somewhere between 15 to 
of their total daily energy expenditure. Uh, but it's you know possible to double your energy expenditure for the day with a few hours of hard training. And some athletes have actually been physically measured to produce close to 20,000 calories of daily energy expenditure during competition. And these are extreme endurance athletes. So it's definitely on the far outlier of how much energy, but um, you know that's somewhere in the region of eight times the typical total daily energy expenditure for a typical person um, that is of a similar age and body mass. So the ability for us to chew through energy and use energy is pretty vast. And we don't know if there's a limit on that yet. Um, some people have hypothesized that there might be a limit to how much energy we can actually just burn through in a day. And so far, people have gotten pretty close to 20,000 calories in a day. Uh, and so it's, it's pretty massive. Now, obviously, some people are going to be doing a tenth of that. We also have to think about diet-induced thermogenesis, which sometimes people refer to as the thermic effect of food, uh, which has a couple of different components. The first one is just the energy required to digest, absorb, and assimilate our food. And then we also have another part of it, which comes after that, which is the activation of the sympathetic nervous system. And this has a general stimulative effect on metabolic rate. Uh, so, you know, if you, if you don't eat any food, you tend to kind of slow down a little bit, so to speak. Now, the measurement of how we measure uh, thermic effect of food is affected by a lot of things. It's affected by the meal size, the macro composition of the food, how much time you've had since your previous meal, uh, your nutritional status. But generally speaking, the thermic effect of food is maximal after about an hour of eating, and it's pretty uh, individual. Some people ramp up their thermic effect of food pretty high, and some people show a reduced thermic effect response. So many overweight individuals have actually been observed to have a lower response to the thermic effect of feeding. Uh, however, uh, most people are somewhere within the region of about 10% of their total daily energy expenditure coming from the food they eat. And so it's not a hugely significant amount, and the physical activity part is still much, more, much, much more uh, relevant, I think. Now, I mentioned climate before. Uh, resting metabolic rate is about 5 to 20% higher in tropical climates compared to temperate climates. So just trying to manage the external heat is really a massive deal. And exercising in hot weather will increase your oxygen consumption slightly. It's a little bit harder. Uh, you might get maybe 5% extra out of that. Uh, most people probably recognize that cold can also increase your resting metabolic rate. It can also increase your exercise energy requirements. Uh, it, it really depends on how exposed you are to the cold. So things like your, your body fat and how exposed you are to the cold via how much clothing you're wearing and what the wind chill factor is can also affect it. Um, but in both extremes of weather, the extra energy requirements are greater because you have to try and maintain your core temperature. So certainly environmental factors play a role and that, that kind of flows on to what kind of work you're doing. If you're in a, a stable sort of environment in, inside an office, for example, that's air conditioned, then you can expect that your resting metabolic rate is going to be a bit lower than someone who is outside. And typically, if you're outside, you're probably working an active job as well. So it magnifies the difference between those two professions. Uh, I did mention pregnancy is going to add to your energy expenditure. And essentially, that comes through mostly because of weight bearing and reduced economy of motion and how you move. There is a small effect from the fetus growth, but it's actually relatively small compared to the added energy cost uh, due to weight bearing and the reduced economy of motion when you're walking. Okay, now talking a bit more about energy expenditure, because this is where I think most of our uh, focus should really be. 
we have classified various physical activities for how much they cost in terms of energy. And scientists have translated this into something called MET, and this stands for Multiples of Resting Metabolic Rate. Uh, essentially what it does, this system, it defines tasks by how much energy it costs for an untrained person to complete it. So one MET or one MET would be resting oxygen consumption, which is standardized to 250 milliliters of oxygen per minute for men and 200 milliliters of oxygen per minute for women. So we've just kind of taken that as an average. Obviously, there's going to be individual variation there. Uh, and two METs would therefore mean you're doubling that rate. So that's basically how the system works. It's just like relative to your resting metabolic rate, how much extra does this activity cost? Uh, so in weight-bearing exercise, body mass is the major contributor to energy cost. Sorry, little uh, car movement outside. Uh, so weight-supported exercise like cycling or leaning on cardio equipment actually significantly reduces the energy cost. So if you're doing any cardio and you are doing, say, 30 minutes of cardio at a particular heart rate, you probably find because weight-bearing is the primary uh, contributor to energy cost for exercise, uh, you know, doing 30 minutes on a bike versus 30 minutes of pushing a sled or something like that, it's going to be pretty different in terms of the energy cost because on the bike, a lot of your weight is supported by the frame of the bike itself. When you're running or walking on a treadmill, if you're leaning on the equipment or let's say you're doing a stepper and you're leaning on the equipment, it's actually going to significantly reduce the amount of energy you burn if you lean on it. So anybody who's in prep, uh, if I prep any competitors or anything like that, I try and make sure that they don't lean on the equipment because generally you're feeling pretty tired when you're in a prep and you, you want to do that. And unfortunately, it just means that their efforts are going a little bit to waste because they won't be expending as much energy. Now, this also means that if you are overweight or particularly heavy, then weight-bearing exercise like walking actually adds a considerable energy cost purely due to the extra mass that you have to carry around. So it's a pretty interesting thing. Now, what a lot of people do, and this gets to my point about the Fitbit and measuring heart rate, is that people will use their heart rate to estimate energy expenditure. Now, the reason why we do this and why it became a thing is because for an individual, heart rate and oxygen consumption increase linearly over a large range of exercise intensities. So I mentioned before that you can actually measure very accurately if you know how much oxygen consumption is occurring in a person, then you know how much energy they are using. And we found that heart rate and oxygen consumption for many activities correlates quite well. So often people will use heart rate as a proxy for oxygen consumption during aerobic exercise. We'd obviously prefer to measure actual oxygen consumption, but how are you gonna do that in, in a real life setting? That's only really practical in a lab setting. So what can you do? The problem is, is that it's different for individuals. Uh, so you might see a linear relationship between heart rate and oxygen consumption across multiple individuals. So on average, we see this linear relationship between heart rate and oxygen consumption, they correlate quite well, but the same heart rate value does not mean the same amount of oxygen consumption in each person. So I couldn't have the, you know, a, a chart saying, okay, well, if your heart rate is 120 BPM, you're gonna consume this amount of oxygen and therefore you're gonna be burning this amount of energy per minute. It doesn't work because everybody's a little bit different and there are a lot of factors that come into it. 
the other thing that most people fail to realize is that heart rate to estimate energy expenditure is scientifically validated for only a few general exercise activities. And there are multiple factors other than oxygen consumption that affect heart rate. So things that can affect your heart rate that have nothing to do with your oxygen consumption or how much energy you're burning are things like the temperature, your emotional status, your food intake, which muscle groups are being used, um, how continuous the exercise is, like are you starting and stopping or are you doing it continuously, what your training status is. All of these things can affect your heart rate without really affecting your oxygen consumption. And so that starts to muddy the water uh, for how much uh, calorie consumption you're actually having during that exercise as well. So we tend to see, for example, higher heart rates occurring with upper body exercise. We tend to see higher heart rates with static contractions versus dynamic contractions. So like if you used a heart rate value that was validated for cycling on a static upper body exercise, you would over predict the oxygen consumption and it would be completely wrong. You wouldn't get the right number of calories burned for that. So it depends what formula you're using and it has to be very specific to the task being used. The next thing that a lot of people kind of misrepresent or don't quite understand is gross versus net energy expenditure. So we estimate energy expenditure via oxygen consumption during a physical task, but that also includes the energy that you would have expended during rest. So if you weren't even doing anything, if you weren't exercising, you would still be consuming some oxygen, even if you weren't exercising. And so sometimes what people do is they'll take the total amount of oxygen consumed during a task and they'll go, oh, look, I burned 500 calories doing this. And it's like, well, yeah, but if you had been at rest for that period of time, you might have burned 250 calories. And so what you really burned was 250 extra calories, right? So you have to deduct the estimated rate of resting oxygen consumption from the total amount of oxygen consumption. And that provides a net energy expenditure for the actual task that you did. Um, so sometimes people get a, bit, get a bit confused by that as well. Um, and it provides a bit of an inaccurate estimation for how much work they actually did. Now, the probably the most important point during all of this is that oxygen consumption or energy expenditure during a light to moderate exercise task has a pretty stable rate of oxygen consumption. And we, we call that steady state cardio or steady state metabolism because we can quite easily predict the amount of oxygen being consumed with the amount of work being done and the amount of energy being expended. And that's got a quite stable relationship there. And so it allows us some degree of accuracy. You know, if we were to take someone who is doing walking on a treadmill, that is quite well scientifically validated. We've gathered data from a lot of different individuals doing that. It's a steady state uh, condition. And so if you use some kind of heart rate formula for walking on a treadmill, you'd probably be pretty accurate if you entered in your weight and your age. I don't imagine that you'd be too far off in terms of trying to estimate your energy expenditure based on your heart rate in that kind of task, because it's a pretty common task, um, like I mentioned. But as soon as you start getting into more anaerobic metabolism, or you have a variation in the types of energy expenditure you're doing, so let's say lifting weights, you alternate between it being very high intensity to being very low intensity or basically at rest. Um, so if you have those situations or if you're playing like a team sport uh, where sometimes you're jogging, sometimes you're sprinting, sometimes you're, you're just resting or standing there, um, if we have more reliance on anaerobic metabolism or if we have a mix of energy systems being used, then the 
estimates of oxygen consumption become less and less and less accurate over that given, given time period. Uh, and so it becomes very difficult to then estimate what your energy expenditure is going to be. And so for many people who are going out for a run or they're doing like Ironman training or endurance training or they're playing a team sport and they're trying to estimate how many calories they're burning, it's kind of useless because we have this variation in heart rate occurring. We have different economies of movement. We have different temperatures. We have different um, external conditions and our formulas don't really work very well unless we're in a really steady state controlled environment for a particular movement as well. So I just mentioned economy of movement, and this is another thing that a lot of people don't really account for. So we, we talk about economy of movement, and this is basically uh, the energy required to maintain constant velocity of movement. And we generally use oxygen consumption for these energy expenditure estimates when we have a constant velocity of movement. We don't have someone uh, moving at a different pace or going up and down a hill or whatever it is. Um, so we can only really apply this movement economy concept to steady state exercise where oxygen consumption can be really accurately tied to energy expenditure. Um, and greater economy of movement during a steady state exercise performed at fixed velocity basically means less oxygen consumption, um, which means we are doing, we're expending less energy. So in other words, the more efficient you become at a movement, the less energy you expend, obviously. And some movements can become pretty efficient, like running or walking. So it becomes important when we're talking about long durations of exercise, because, uh, you know, small improvements in movement efficiency really begin to add up the longer the exercise goes. Uh, so if you're only doing a 20 minute bout of, say, high intensity exercise or a 20 minute bout of walking or whatever, it's like it doesn't matter that much how much uh, economy of movement you have or how much your technique improves and how efficient you get because you know at the end of the day it's not going to amount to that much because your exercise intensity is not that long but if you become much more efficient at running and your technique cleans up a lot and you're going out for an hour or two hour run well now all of a sudden your exercise your energy expenditure from that exercise is going to be pretty significantly different because of that in that small improvement in economy of motion just because of the sheer length of uh of the run that you're doing or whatever it is you know even amongst elite athletes there's actually quite a substantial variation in economy of movement and things like your fiber type distribution and the active muscles could even play a role in that so there's quite a lot of individual variation um that doesn't really matter on a small level like i mentioned but when you get to the point where you're doing a lot of exercise it starts to matter much much more so this leads me to a point that some people make where um, they'll try and calculate how much energy is expended through simple physics. So they'll basically go, look, to move a, an 80 kilo object, say a person, a certain distance requires a certain amount of energy and therefore we can quite easily predict how much energy that costs and then you know exactly uh, how much energy you're expending to carry your weight a certain distance. And the problem with that is that no machine is 100% efficient and the human body is absolutely no exception to that. The energy required to overcome the internal and external friction is a really major factor that reduces efficiency, and that's why we produce heat. So the, the work uh, input is always greater than the work output. And uh, common efficiency measures for walking, running, and cycling is approximately 20 to 25%. So we're not 100% efficient. You can't simply take someone's body mass. You can't then calculate the distance they're gonna go and say, aha, I know exactly how uh, much energy they're gonna expend because there's way too many factors involved that reduce our energy efficiency. 
Um, and so we're always going to expend a little bit more energy or a little bit less energy depending on some of those factors like your uh, your economy of movement, the external factors, uh, how well trained you are, how well you, you uh, generate or regenerate ATP within your own body. Um, you know, and we see this because technology innovations like swimsuits, for example, can drastically increase movement efficiency and they have a really profound uh, impact on exercise performance. And they've gotten even to the point where they've banned those full body swimsuits because it's just making the swimmers so much better because they are now so much more efficient, right? It's making the machine, it's taking it closer to 100% efficiency, uh, whereas we are obviously pretty inefficient to start with. Um, and there's even been some claims, I don't know if you've ever read some of these books, but uh, some people even claim that many of the improvements in sport over the last century come down mainly to technologies that improve mechanical efficiency. So better running shoes, better track conditions in sport, things like that. It's pretty interesting. So further to this point, um, I'll probably wrap up this podcast pretty quickly now because it's kind of dragging on a little bit, but further to this point, uh, energy expenditure during walking uh, is something that is the most predictable, but can still be pretty unpredictable in many ways. So what I mean by that is that the relationship between walking speeds of about three to five kilometers an hour, which is like not really that fast, it's it's three uh, k's an hour is a stroll, and five k's an hour is starting to get towards brisk walk territory. Um, now the relationship between walking speeds of that and oxygen consumption is linear. So we can be pretty confident in uh, how much oxygen you're gonna consume given your, your body size, your body mass, and given your gender. But beyond this, walking economy decreases and therefore there's a disproportionate increase in energy expenditure. So for the same distance, a faster and therefore less mechanically efficient walking speed results in greater caloric expenditure. So this goes back to my point, you can't just calculate the distance that a certain amount of mass is gonna move and work out how much energy it takes to move it. It depends on how fast we walk. The faster we walk, the less mechanically efficient we get, and therefore we get this disproportionate increase in energy expenditure. We get a disproportionate increase in oxygen consumption. Just think about it, like if you tried to sprint one kilometer versus trying to walk one kilometer, which one will leave you with a greater oxygen debt? It's obviously much harder to sprint that far and most people can't do it. Even walking on the type of terrain will change this. So walking on rough terrain like um, snow or a plowed field would increase your energy expenditure by a factor of somewhere in the region of one and a half times. And walking on sand can increase walking expenditure by two times, it can double it. Walking downhill consists of a different type of muscle contraction. It consists mainly of an eccentric muscle contraction compared to a concentric. And eccentric muscle contractions where you're lowering the weight requires less energy input. That's one factor, but then again, higher negative gradients, so the steeper the hill gets that you're walking down, energy expenditure may increase again because there's an increased requirement for braking and it alters your walking mechanics. Even the type of footwear that you use can change how much energy you expend. So loads on the body that are further away from the center of mass actually increase the amount of energy required to move them. So if you placed a one kilogram weight on a 70 kilogram person's ankle, it increases their energy expenditure by approximately 8% while walking. So all of a sudden these ankle weights don't look so silly anymore, right? The value is about five to six times more 
than if the same weight was placed on the torso. So if you used a one kilogram weighted vest, uh, you would definitely increase your energy expenditure because you're having to move more weight. But if you took that same one kilogram weight and put it on somebody's ankle, it would increase their energy expenditure by approximately 8%. So weight of your shoes, the type of clothes you wear, all of that kind of stuff can actually have a significant energy cost of walking and running. An additional 100 grams of footwear weight increases oxygen consumption by, on average, about 1% during moderate running. Uh, you know, and this goes across to workwear conditions as well. If you have workwear in professions like construction or firefighting or the army, obviously heavier boots and, and protective equipment, that kind of thing, it can have quite a significant impact on daily energy expenditure, especially if you're doing this uh, profession that involves a lot of walking and you're in tough terrain, like a, say an, an army recruit might be in. So there's too many factors involved. And I guess this is the point that I'm trying to get at throughout this whole podcast is to kind of summarize it is that there are multiple factors that contribute to our energy expenditure. And certainly physical activity is the most variable out of all of them. And so for me, I think that's probably the target for us if we're trying to increase energy expenditure, that should be the main thing that we're focused on. But trying to calculate the energy expenditure that you have during a workout or during a cardio session or anything like that is very, very difficult because there are so many factors involved. For some activities, you can use heart rate and you can get with reasonable accuracy in the ballpark of how much energy you're actually expending because we can correlate that with how much oxygen you might be using. But as soon as you start getting into situations where the the temperature of the environment is not controlled, the gradient of the angle you're walking on, the speed at which you're walking, if you're going, uh, you know, not a, a steady pace, if your pace is going up and down a little bit, there's all these different things that can affect your energy expenditure. So it becomes very difficult to calculate energy expenditure based on heart rate. And certainly the Fitness trackers we have with the wrist placement aren't really up to the task yet. A chest strap works reasonably well compared to lab equipment, but the wrist-based monitors actually don't work that well for measuring heart rate and they get less accurate the more intense the exercise gets. And certainly our formulae for trying to calculate how much energy you're expending gets less accurate the higher the exercise intensity gets. Okay, I'm going to leave it there. Hopefully that was helpful to you and it kind of gives you a bit of an insight into energy expenditure in general and how much is involved with it and just how useless it can be to try and estimate energy expenditure based off of heart rate and the current generation of fitness trackers. You really do need lab equipment measuring gas exchange to be as accurate as possible. Uh, Again, keep an eye out for the science of fitness coming up for public release towards the end of January or probably a couple of weeks from the release of this podcast you'll start to see the page go up so keep an eye on social media for that otherwise hope you have a great day and i'll chat to you all very soon thanks for listening